Northern New York Community Podcasts, stories from the heart of our community. We're back with another edition of the podcast. Thanks again for listening to another inspiring community story. I'm your host, Max Del Signor, and today's guest was a lawyer, district attorney, and county court judge during his lifetime in Northern New York. And this person also devoted his life to helping the community whenever he was asked. He played an instrumental role in establishing a couple local nonprofits, helped generate support for the area agencies, and has been a longtime advocate for several community causes. Lee Clary is here to talk about his time in the North Country, the role of being the county's district attorney and court judge, and how philanthropy played a role in his involvement and love for the area. Lee, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. Pleased to be here. Being a district attorney and county court judge seemingly comes with a lot of pressure, I would think. Uh, you experienced great success, though, in both positions. What would you say were just the factors behind responsibly handling each of those roles? Well, there are pressures. There's no, no getting around that. Um, when I became DA in uh, 1977, I was the person who did the present, presentments of the grand jury and did all the, the felony trials because there was myself and the two assistants, both of which, or three assistants actually. It was busy. We had a lot of interesting cases and a lot of work to do. The pressure of being district attorney, especially if you're doing the felony trials, is pretty substantial. I think much more than being county court judge, because you have to, the, uh, the preparation that goes into trying a lawsuit is significant. And uh, being the, the judge, you're kind of the referee in a sense during the trial, and then you're, obviously if there's a conviction, it's a very important uh, role in and uh, sentencing, making sure it's a fair and just sentence. So, yeah, there are pressures. Can you share a little insight into just that preparation piece? You, know, you mentioned being a DA. There's a lot of time that has to go into how you kind of look at the case, how you, how you go about that. What were some of the, the keys you thought to make, your, make sure you were prepared for each of those cases? Well, that's the, the, the key to it for being either a district attorney or, or a defense attorney, any lawyer that tries cases, is preparation. The person is uh, the best prepared, has a, a big advantage, especially if his opposition is not as well prepared. Because you know, so we, we have to look at the file, review it, talk to the witnesses, make sure that they're obviously available and and they're on board as far as uh, being willing to come in and testify, and and uh, then you're you're trying to uh, look at what's what's the opposition going to going to present, what types of witnesses, cross-examination, you prepare for that right before the trial starts. So there's a, there's a lot of time involved in that. And if you're in a trial, in a lawsuit, and, and you're the district attorney, you also have other responsibilities during the day. So, But you're, you're obligated to be in front of the county court judge from, say, 9.30 till 5 with a break for lunch. So. You have to do some, a lot of work before and a lot of work after. Um, nights are, especially when you get down to the nitty gritty in a trial, or even in the beginning, whenever something comes up, it needs some work. That's when you have to do the preparation work. Weekends, it's a, it's a very, very uh, time consuming and interesting. And for a trial, for a person who wants to be a trial lawyer, and I always wanted to be one, uh, I don't know why, it's crazy because it is pressure packed, but it's where the action is, where 
the excitement is, where the human interest, the stories are, are told in, in criminal court cases. So I, I enjoyed it very much. Well, and, and you're not a native of the area, too. It took some time before you came to northern New York. Um, where did you grow up originally, and what was life uh, like growing up for you as a kid? I, I really grew up in uh, Syracuse, although I was born in Geneva, but I spent most of my growing up years from like third or fourth grade until I graduated from, high, from law school in uh, Syracuse, with the exception of one year that I, that I worked down in Manhattan for about eight months. So I, uh, I grew up, I was, my, I'm from a single family, a single parent family. My mother, my father uh, split up a couple of times when I was really young and then from the third grade on, so when I was about nine or 10, uh, somewhere in there, um, we were raised by my mother with my grandfather and grandmother's help in Syracuse. We lived with them. Two uh, sisters and brother and I. So it was interesting. It was interesting. I guess we were poor, but we never knew it. Nobody thought that they were deprived or anything, and we had a great, uh, you know, childhood and and uh, you know, high school programs and everything. We were we were uh, fine and dandy. And you, your wife Shirley didn't live too far away from where you grew up. Well, Is that when correct? we yes, we moved to. Uh, 1960, we moved up to Roberts Avenue in Syracuse, and my uh, we were on Roberts and Crossett, and my wife was on Roberts and Grandview, about three fairly short blocks away. So it was a walking courtship, and it was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> now, for law school, where did the 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 interest? for pursuing that career come from? And do you remember how old you were when you started to think, this is the, the route I want to take? Well, yeah, I was about uh, 22, I think, <laughs> it really, when I started seriously to consider law, because I, uh, I had gone, I was in the seminary, studying to be a priest for four and a half years, and I had, did obtain a bachelor's degree there, but as you can imagine, with a bachelor's degree, with a major in philosophy and a minor in Latin, employable? Mm, uh, not so much. Uh, I had so many interviews when I dropped out of the seminary, federal and state civil service jobs, uh, and uh, it was tough. And then I got the job in, uh, in New York City, worked down there for eight months, and it was at that point during my eight months there that I because there were a couple of guys that were going to night school, uh, law school, that were working in that same office. It wasn't a huge office by any means. And I kind of got some inspiration from them, but I did not want to go to night school for four years in New York City and work full time. That was just, that was just too much. So then I decided to come back home to Syracuse and I went to Syracuse Law School, lived with my mom and my siblings. The difference between being in the seminary practicing to become a priest, and then pursuing law. Seems to be a dichotomy there. Yeah. What did, what did some of the education you received um, from your time in the seminary, how did that help prepare you for law school and becoming a lawyer? Well, you had, you had a course in ethics, and that, that's when you're a lawyer, uh, you're bombed by a significant canon of ethics, uh, and you know, there's a lot of similarities in there. Uh, it, it was good discipline. Uh, we got up at 5.15 in the major seminaries, went to bed about 20 to 10. Uh, there was 
very strict rules in those times. Um, we took, uh, the one thing I remember, uh, uh, the preparation for certain uh, courses. I, we took a course in cosmology, not cosmetology. This is <laughs> cosmology, it's a study of the universe and all of, and we uh, had an oral exam for a final given in Latin. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, you want to talk about pressure? <laughs> I mean, I, I think I felt more pressure before I went in that, and it was one-on-one -on -one with the professor, uh, and I felt more pressure going into there than I think maybe I ever felt in my life. <laughs> I mean, you know. So it was, a, it was an interesting experience. I think discipline, uh, I don't know, it was, uh, you know, I, I, was, I thought it was a pretty good uh, preparation for just about any kind of a career. Uh, I didn't go there to be prepared for a career in law by any means. I, I was in there for the long run, but uh, made the decision uh, not to go further after a lot of thought and discussions with people and my, you know, counselors at the seminary. So hey, it worked out. You had mentioned before when you worked in New York City and, and before we, we did the podcast today that there was kind of a, a, a tipping point, a moment for you personally where you began to understand how important it was to give back. Um, could you share a little bit about that, that experience sure. and how you started to kind of dabble a little bit in community engagement and philanthropy? Yeah, it was, uh, I lived in, a, actually I had a room on 107th Street and Amsterdam Avenue in New York, way up on the Upper West Side. And uh, I remember the, it was 11 bucks a week. <laughs> and uh, so on our street was a, was a Catholic church. And of course I was Catholic. And so I obviously became a parishioner there. And came a time when they had what we would call a bishop's appeal or hope appeal in Syracuse, where they're trying to raise some money for projects and uh, they had us, I volunteered along with a whole bunch of other people to go out and collect for, you know, a few days. And I went, uh, I was given a few cards and I went to this, the one apartment I remember was uh, not very far from mine, uh, of substantial Hispanic families, I think three generations, there were seven, eight people there. And, uh, you know, you. It was well, it was neat and everything, but you knew that these folks did not have anything, you know, really, any substance at all as far as, and I said, you know, I almost felt like saying, well, you know, it's been nice visiting you and I wish you a lot of luck, you know, or whatever, and not take any money because I didn't think they could afford to give us any money. I was wrong. They gave money, not a lot, which I was, but I went out of there with a whole different feeling about people, their ability and their generosity, basic generosity of even the poorest of poor. And uh, so that uh, led me to maybe have a different slant on it. So I might, might think about giving myself and, uh, you know, since I was doing better than they were, I, I should turn back or turn in some of that cash and do something with it. Well, and you had eventually, once you completed law school, made your way up to northern New York. And before you made your move here, did you know where Watertown was or the North Country? Had you been up here previously? Yeah, I had been. Uh, I was a camper and a counselor and a dishwasher, I guess 
camper dishwasher. I think I was a counselor, but at least a camper and a dishwasher at Camp Towsie up in uh, Millside Lake um, outside of Redwood for three or four you know, summers. And so I was familiar with Jefferson County. I worked uh, after I left the seminary for my uncle in a trucking company as a trucker's, uh, trucker's helper, driver's helper on a furniture delivery. We used to come up to Watertown on, you know, maybe once a month. So I, I generally was familiar with the geography. I did not know a soul in Watertown though when, when I moved up here except for the people in the firm. Uh, that I that I joined convoy firm in Watertown, and those are the only people I had uh, known before I actually made the move. Mm -hmm. Carl Bachman was the one who actually recruited you to come to join well, the law firm, correct? Yeah, he did. He came down to Syracuse uh, Law School, and he was a good friend of Dean Miller. And uh, he was he said I could use a young man who young lawyer didn't say young man, but when I graduated from law school, it was. 95 to 98 <laughs> percent male-dominated field. That was crazy, but uh, especially considering all the the changes and it has worked out to be so you know fortunate for everybody, but especially for the the gals that wanted to be lawyers. So in any event, um, I um, Dean Miller and I had talked a little bit about uh, maybe if there's a job opening that was something I'd be interested in. I told him what I wanted to do. I'm mainly interested in doing trials if I could, or at least be, start with them. So Carl and I, you know, became acquainted and he interviewed me and I went up, said I'd, I'd do it. I wanted to, to give it a whirl. And Carl also was maybe the same person who got you engaged in the community, correct? After, yep, sure did. That's another memory that's just very vivid. After I went up to uh, the firm, we were working for a while, how long, I don't know. And Carl had me in the office one day and he says, you know, Lee, he says, I think that every young lawyer ought to do some, uh, some volunteer work, some community service. They ought to work for some uh, not-for-profit or be on some boards and do something to give back to the community. And he says, I know just the uh, community service and not-for-profit that you should be working for. And I says, oh, what's that? He says, the March of Dimes. He happened to be the campaign director that year for the March of Dimes. So I says, sounds good, Carl. <laughs> so <laughs> I went, uh, I became as well as a whole, uh, quite a few other uh, good people that I met in Watertown, became involved as board members. But we did a lot of work too, which was great. We, we sold bread. I drove some high school kids out and about in the community and we sold bread in January, which wasn't a lot of fun when it was like zero or five below. <laughs> and we had a couple of those kinds of Januaries. And we were involved in the Mother's March. I remember we were short of volunteers one year and we had buttons that say, today I am a mother. <laughs> so I wore one of those and I went out and tried to raise some monies for money for the March of Dimes and it was a great experience, great experience. Well, and what kind of transpired over time, it seems, after that, there were a lot of other activities you were asked to be involved with. You and your wife, Shirley, were asked to kind of help participate in. Um, one thing we talked about a little bit before this, this interview 
was your assistance or your help in establishing the Watertown Urban Mission and the Credo Community Center. Uh, what was that experience like in collaborating with other community members to set these nonprofits up to provide such a vital service in the area? Well, to say that I helped establish would be, a, you know, that would be puffing. <laughs> uh, you know, that would be above and beyond what I actually did. But we had a group of people. Uh, for Credo, it was Father Ray Wirtman, it was Charlie and Edie Marcellus. They were the folks that, that got it going, uh, especially Edie and Father Ray, who were wonderful people and still are. We helped along with the Mayfees, Phil and Joanne Mayfee. Phil was city court judge for years in, in uh, City Watertown and a great guy. And my, he was the low man on the totem pole at the convoy firm when I came. And then when I walked in the door, he ascended to up the ladder a little bit. So, uh, but he was a great guy and uh, he worked hard on uh, both of those organizations. And it was actually Archie and Rosie Laverty and Jim Cordeau, Reverend Jim Cordeau, and his wife Shirley established the urban mission along with the help of Jack Smiley, a whole bunch of people who, uh, back then, uh, a lot of the uh, churches and ministers uh, were instrumental in that. So I helped with some donations and got the word around and put my name on the mortgage along with four other folks. Uh, for the farm at Grado out in Jenkins Road in Pamelia. Fortunately, this, uh, the payments were all made. <laughs> we kidded because we stood the five families that did that, said, well, you know, if things go belly up, uh, we can all have a commune out there. We got a, a big um, ranch house out there and a farm and we can grow vegetables or whatever. And so we kidded about it, but it was, it, it was a successful program from almost the beginning. It was a little bit controversial, but it sure took off and the state helped and we have what Credo is today, which is a huge uh, program and an asset to the community. What did you learn the most from those experiences? You know, navigating the, the obstacles of helping establish a nonprofit, but then getting it up and running. You know, what were the, the personal takeaways you took from that experience? Well, obviously, I think, you know, Edie and Father Ray and Jim Cordeau could tell you a, a lot more about how they got it established. I, I just was along for the ride. They needed a donation, fine. If they needed something else, some of the people, uh, you know, volunteered to paint and do this. I mean, when things were really beginning, and then I was tried to be helpful in, in getting the word out, and uh, it was it was really a it's funny because Credo and the Urban Mission started almost the same year, I mean, within a year or two of each other, and uh, that's over, I don't know, it's almost 50 years old now, or 50 years old, both institutions. What, what was it like to be able to give back or to help in the community along with your wife, Shirley, you know, to be able to do that together as a couple? Uh, it was a great, great feeling. It's, uh, we've got a wonderful community here in Jefferson County and the North Country. Uh, you know, f financially, we may not be the richest county in the state by far, but uh, or the richest area. We have our problems, but we've got a lot of wonderful natural assets, and uh, we've also got some great organizations that uh, 
And so to help them, uh, you know, whatever I could do, was it's just a great feeling to see them grow and be successful and help so many people like Urban Mission, like Credo. Uh, it's just been, been great. And then when I retired, uh, Shirley and I retired within two days of one another, and uh, you're asked, uh, Don Alexander asked me to be on the North Country Community Foundation Board. And <clears throat> I knew about the foundation, but I wasn't particularly close to it. I had three kids, my oldest three kids, all benefited from scholarships uh, to made for them to go to school. And we had three children in four years, and most of the time when, when they were being educated at college, I was district attorney and uh, the, the money wasn't substantial and that was a big help uh, to me. And I said, yeah, I think you know, if, you, if you've been giving something, you ought to be get, giving back. And so sure, I said, I'll be on the board. I don't know what great expertise I bring to anything, but I'll, you know, I'll give it a shot. And it was a wonderful 10-year experience. Met so many great people and uh, established some friendships and and uh, I was a big fan of Alex Velto. I thought he was a wonderful guy. And uh, Randy Richardson, who succeeded him, is a terrific guy. And both have big hearts. And, and the programs that have been started and been continued to be supported by Foundation are near and dear to me. So, What was the best or what were the best experiences of serving on the Community Foundation Board um, in comparison maybe to the other boards or committees that you served on? Right. Well, uh, I always said, you know, but what, can, what better job can you have than giving away other, pay, other people's money, you know? So, <laughs> I, you know, it was great. But uh, one of the things, uh, one of the areas that I was particularly attracted to, and this I think started towards the, the end of Alex's uh, being director of, uh, you know, before his untimely passing, he um, started this uh, non-traditional scholarship help. And in other words, people who were not the year four-year high school uh, going into college as 18, 19-year-olds, and, and then, uh, and of course, that program had, was very successful and been funded uh, quite generously for years. But this was more the person who maybe was switching careers, had started off doing something and that didn't work out and then wanted to do something else. But at that point, they were maybe a single parent or maybe they were uh, in, a parent, uh, in a house with a couple, three or four kids and they needed some educational or some training, um, you know, like for career training and they couldn't afford it. And uh, this non-traditional scholarship program was right on the money and uh, we used to, uh, we had a committee that used to interview people for those scholarships and uh, boy the stories we heard and uh, you know it was just a you know pure pleasure to be involved in that committee be able to award those scholarships and we had some great success stories and I'm sure they're continuing to be successful because boy if you can get somebody that has you know really in a in kind of in the middle of the road here wondering where do I go now and I don't want this is not 
something that's working out for me. I want to do something else. I know what I want to do, but I can't get there because I just can't afford it. It's a great, great solution. So uh, that was one area that I particularly liked. During the course of your time living in the North Country, whether it's you personally, um, you and Shirley doing some things together, or whether you served on boards or committees, it seemed as if you surrounded yourself with friends and peers who had the same mentality, you know, being able to help your community, make it thrive, continue to make it vibrant. Why do you feel it's important to surround yourself with those types of like-minded individuals that had the same genuine spirit that you have? We were really fortunate because uh, we were at one point uh, going to Holy Family uh, Church. There was a folk mass. To, the kids liked it. <laughs> and uh, But we got to meet, uh, not only we'd already known the Mayfees, but we got to meet the Laverties and the Files and the, and, uh, the uh, Marcellas and, and other families. And uh, we both, uh, it just, took off from there. They were, they were interested. We went to a marriage encounter weekend up at uh, the Guggenheim uh, Institute up in Saranac Lake with the Mayfees and the, uh, also Jim Cordy, you and Shirley were there and, uh, and I'm sure a number of the other folks that I've just mentioned. To be perfectly frank, I can't, I can't tell you that they were there or not, but I think <laughs> they were there. At least we continued with that kind of thing for a while and that brought us together. Uh, we had some meetings and fun things that we did as a group. And uh, their example was, was uh, amazing for, for Shirley and I. She, she got involved with Urban Mission. She was a secretary for uh, a few years as a member of the board and uh, uh, she got involved with that. And of course she's been a friend of Rosie Laverty's for years. Archie and Rosie were very instrumental in Urban Mission. I think that was just a fortunate thing that happened, that we got to meet these these folks that were so, uh, you know, they were generous folks. It rubbed off. I'm going to jump back to your career here. So you took office as the county DA in 1977, correct, and served right. in that role for 10 years 76. So. Me and Jimmy Carter and... <laughs> won that election in 76. Going in it together. <laughs> what did you learn the most about serving as the county district attorney? What did I learn the most? Well, boy, it was an education on, uh, in, the, uh, in the criminal justice system. I had never been an assistant DA. I'd done a, a fair amount of criminal defense work as mostly as a assigned counsel in uh, Jefferson County. Um, did some in, in Syracuse for three years before I moved up here. So I, I got a, I was attracted to the criminal justice system, the law, the, the trials of criminal cases, I just, that just kind of just zeroed in on that. So in 76, I decided to run for district attorney. You can ask my daughter, uh, Mary Beth, uh, who was 11 at the time, whether that was a good idea or not. <laughs> we had a very interesting discussion on why I was making this move. She thought I, I needed to be evaluated psychiatrically because uh, I was crazy but hey it uh, it worked out you just never know but I just thought it was something I wanted to do and my wife was very very cooperative I, I don't know if she was teaching when I announced I was going to run or not but she soon became a teacher and 
full-time in 79, I believe, so it was a little down the line. And so, uh, you know, it was, it was quite an interesting experience. I just, I, I, I got to meet a whole slew of lawyers and, and police officers, law enforcement people, probation officers. Uh, I had great relationships with all of those uh, operations and those associations, organizations. We had some memorable trials, memorable, you know, activities going on. It was a, it was a great tenure. Is there one or two, are there one or two cases, I should say, that stand out in your mind oh, from, from sure. your time? Yeah, no, yeah, we had a, 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 I remember, I think about three of them, but one of them was with a retired BCI investigator was ambushed and killed by shotgun in the middle of the night. And that was a, that was an adventure. And it, uh, it had mixed blessings. And two of the people involved were convicted, uh, but the shooter went to trial and was acquitted, which was a very, very tough moment in my legal career. At least the alleged shooter, I should say. But, uh, and then we had a terrible accident up in Cape Vincent, between Cape Vincent and Clayton, five kids were killed in a car accident. That was a, I was involved with that from investigation through the trial and uh, ultimate disposition. That was a trial that wound up to be a hung jury because we had a, a bit of a problem with the, the guy was, uh, the defendant was not intoxicated. He came in as a blood level under that. Impaired, and at the time that that made a significant difference. So, oh, there were there were several homicide cases that were extremely interesting, and and uh, one thing I tell people, I says, you want you want to get a baptism by fire of trial work. Uh, one of the first or second year, I tried three burglary cases, uh, prosecuted three burglary cases, did jury verdict in nine days, <laughs> and a two-week trial term. Wow. And the Friday after, which was the 10th day, I asked Judge Edward, I said, Judge, you think you could give me the day off from trials today? I'd like to catch up a little bit. <laughs> he laughed. He said, gee, I think so. <laughs> so, you know, we had a lot of great experiences. He was a wonderful judge. Did Being in that position, district attorney or county court judge, how did that actually open your eyes up to other community needs? Um, that maybe you felt became more important because you got to witness it firsthand or see some of these cases at a deeper level uh, than the public might see? Yeah, I, I think, for example, even before becoming district attorney, I, was, I did assigned counsel work for 12 years for indigent defendants and some of the, some of the you know, home environment and, uh, you know, some of their stories, you know, or, you know, really tough and uh, I, I got an education through that into the drug situations uh, you know a lot of drug cases both defense attorney and his uh, prosecutor um, yeah I think you get an idea of uh, you know the poor the, the poverty area at, at where a lot of these cases came from uh, was very very difficult to to navigate and open my eyes to a, to you know a lot of significant problems. 
you served as county court judge for more than 10 years. Yeah, 12 and a half. Right? 12 and a half. Um, how would you say your approach as a judge differed from what the general public might view a judge to be or what you see on TV? <laughs> There's always one you perception know. of how a judge is. Well, how is your approach different? Well, I, I was lucky because I think I had a pretty good background. I was, you know, I like to say I was... I sat at the uh, defense counsel's table for 12 years. I sat at the DA's prosecution table for 10 years. And then, so I had a, a pretty good view of, of the criminal justice system from both sides. And I thought that would serve me well to be, you know, to be fair. I, I some people that have been prosecutors all their career before they become judge have a view, you know, and you can't help it of uh, maybe one, one, a little bit one-sided view of what should happen in a criminal case. And if you were a defense attorney for your whole career, and that you might have the opposite view or a different view. But it, you gotta have balance if you've seen both sides for 20, I don't know, 20, 22 years. And uh, so I think that was helpful. I think I was, I could listen to both sides. I tried to be fair to both sides, give, not only give the defense a fair trial, but give the people a fair trial. You know, there's, both sides are entitled to, to, to present their evidence and, and to have the jury decide the cases. The judge should not interfere with that decision. So it was, uh, I, I guess I approached it from Vanna Boyne to being, try to be fair, use your background as, as balance for making decisions and Call them as you see them and try, and try to be fair to both sides. You've been fortunate enough after you retired in 1999 to continue giving back. I mean, your engagement with the community really hasn't stopped. Um, how important is philanthropy in a general sense to the future of the North Country? Well, I think it's a very important because financially we do have problems. We had uh, very generous donors for, for, you know, but we... There's a there's a real need for uh, everybody that that uh, can give something to give something back. I was I was kind of taught by my mother and taught by my my faith that, and I'm a very big believer in the Gospels. If to whom much is given, much is expected, uh, and it is more blessed to give than to receive, and more uh, more satisfying. Um, those are, tr those are more, you know, they come from the gospel, but they're, they're, uh, they're moral values that I think everybody should have. Uh, and, uh, if everybody that could, is fortunate enough to have uh, a little more than they need, they could give, you know, fairly generously to some cause that they believe in, we'd be all the richer. And we, we need it because we, we have a lot of needs in this county in this north country I mean substantial needs and uh, uh, they could help meet those needs and we don't want the government to have to fund everything by any means I mean good lord you know people pay enough in taxes they, you know and they these these things they don't really hurt I mean you know they shouldn't really hurt that much and uh, I just think that's that's a, an answer to keeping the tax level low is have the Donors that can do it, step up to the plate and, and uh, help. 
Well, and your willingness to help hasn't, hasn't stopped either. You know, you're still volunteering. Meals on Wheels is very close to your heart, I know, and um, doing some volunteer driving for the Volunteer Transportation Center. So at 78 years old, you're still doing this. You're still giving back. Well, why, why, why keep going? Oh, I love to drive. I really do. I love to drive. And I think it's because uh, when we were in uh, Syracuse growing up, uh, uh, we, like many families, didn't have a car. We took the bus. Everybody got around. We, we had deliveries of groceries to the homes. How about that? Think that happens anymore? Our milk came deliveries. You know, you could get by with an automobile. So I didn't get my license until I was like 22. And uh, so I'm making up for it. Uh, the times that I didn't drive, I'm driving now. I, only, I drive for the Volunteer Center two days a week uh, when I can. And uh, I love it. I just, uh, I think it's a great service. I meet an awful lot of nice people. I hear a lot of great stories. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's a great, thing and it's not it's not hard uh, you know you drive an automobile you can you know I'm a glorified taxi driver I guess for, <laughs> for uh, a number of folks but and uh, so that's that's a great thing and Meals on Wheels is one of my all-time favorite uh, charities or not-for-profits because that is a bare-bones operation uh, we have recently been uh, assumed into Merged into the urban mission, which is terrific. They've been great help to us. They, uh, our executive director now works full time, half time for uh, Meals on Wheels, and then the other time for other half for Urban Mission. She richly deserves it. She's been doing that Meals on Wheels uh, executive director work for over 30 years. Her mother-in-law, before her, they're the only two directors of Meals on Wheels in Watertown. And they're wonderful people, and I mean, uh, so Donna deserves a lot of credit, and uh, the organization good is great. It's pure volunteer work. In other words, the people that drive, and it's not a big deal because it's you know within five miles of the city. The people that drive don't get reimbursed for gasoline or for their time or anything. It, and man, they come and they drive and they and they help in more ways than one. Some do it three, four days a week. And uh, it's, uh, it's a great, uh, great organization. And so, you know, it's been a lot of fun doing those things. So I, what the heck, Mike, well, if, as long as I'm physically able to do it, why shouldn't I? Well, and that's such a good point. Uh, one of the hopes, I think, for this podcast is to have the younger audience, a younger generation, or should we say really the next generation, um, to be able to demonstrate philanthropy and giving back to the community much like your generation has. Uh, what would you say or what would you think is the important message that you would want to impart to that audience to just encourage them to, to give the way you have? Well, you, you know, I think I've talked a little bit about, about that. I just think that the satisfaction you, you get from, from uh, helping out someone in need or an organization in need uh, is, is just makes life worth living. It really does. And it's, uh, I think, an experience that, that would be most uh, satisfying to our next generation to try and be helpful. Uh, the uh, foundation has started uh, this Young People's uh, 
from different high schools have had a, a committee that uh, receives some money from the foundation and then makes awards based on their assessing the needs in, in their particular community, in their area. And that's been, I think, has been terrific. It's been very successful. There are a number of schools that have, have done that. And uh, uh, I think that's great because that will encourage, obviously, the people that are on those leadership councils uh, for, as young students, uh, when they obviously will go to college, some of them, and a lot, most of them probably, and get positions and some will have trades where they'll, they'll make decent money and then down the line will be encouraged to, to, to do what they did in high school, help out you know, the organizations that they think are most deserving. And so I think uh, my message is, God bless, go for it. Uh, it's a rewarding experience. It makes the community so much better. And, uh, you know, it's just all in all, it's a win-win for everybody. I think it's a great place to wrap up too, Lee. It's been a real pleasure to have you offer your personal stories and why philanthropy has meant so much to you and your family and this community. And we appreciate you doing this on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Well, it's, it's a pleasure. Nice uh, talking with you, Max, and good luck in the whole program. We appreciate it, Lee. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to the podcast with our guest, Lee Clary. We are grateful to have the support of WPBS-TV and the Northern New York Community Foundation so we can continue to share these stories on this platform. There are more stories left untold, and we hope to continue sharing them here with you. Stay tuned and keep listening to the Northern New York Community Podcast. Northern New York Community Podcast, stories from the heart of our community.